This podcast is a project of the Massachusetts Cultural Council, a state agency committed to building creative communities and inspiring creative minds. If, if you're on the senior management team of the village, my goal is to ready you to be a CEO somewhere, whether here at the museum or somewhere else. And so I've been very happy that um, some of my colleagues have been finalists uh, as they've looked to take on their own directorship. Hi, I'm Anita Walker, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Jim Donahue, President and CEO of Old Sturbridge Village, and I think there probably is not a person who has gone to elementary school in Massachusetts who has not had an experience at Old Sturbridge Village. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> you are the history door opener for kids, aren't you really? We like to think so, and we sit among um, some other fabulous institutions in the Commonwealth who do the same thing. But yes, we see roughly 60 to 65,000 school kids every year. So it all starts with the history, right? We interpret a period in the country's historic journey where lots of change was happening. You know, the, the 1790s to the 1830s, 1840s were a very busy time in the country. Our economy was transitioning from an agrarian economy to a manufacturing and an industrial economy, and the village tells that story very well. Um, so I think that for teachers, a trip to the village is a great way for their students to kind of step into the painting, right? And put their hands on the actual buildings that stood. Uh, during that period, talk to costumed historians who are interpreting what everyday life would have looked like. So we like to think of it as the context for the classroom learning. Um, and then we've built on that foundation, Anita, to um, do deeper, more immersive programs for children. So yes, 65,000 kids will come and they'll spend three or four hours at the museum as part of a class field trip. But we've also expanded to include programs for interns who are there with us for the summer. Uh, we have some amazing partnerships with some vocational high schools in Massachusetts and in Connecticut where students are reproducing pieces from our collection as part of their coursework. Uh, we have a group of students from Tantasqua High School right in the town that spend an entire semester coming out once or twice a week working on a building uh, refab or renovation. So um, the opportunities for kids and teachers I think are endless. We want to talk today about something kind of nerdy. We say this uh, podcast, uh, a large part of our audience is culture nerds. <laughs> and it's really uh, um, people who run nonprofit organizations who, who want to do it better. And we're so fortunate to uh, have so many partners across the Commonwealth who are doing exemplary work. And one of the areas that we at the Mass Cultural Council have been interested in is this idea of uh, leadership transition. Um, there is an enormous amount of generational leadership change that's happening in our organizations. We've seen in communities where four or five or six of the anchor cultural organizations in a given year are seeing uh, leaders um, uh, move on to other things or retire and a whole new batch of leaders coming in. And uh, we like to think that this process of um, um, leadership change within an organization is uh, not accidental, not serendipitous, but actually rather a thoughtful, intentional process. And you and I have talked about this in the past, and I've been really impressed by the way your board and your organization thinks about leadership change. And to start with, uh, what brought you on board? So first of all, I think it's a great question. And I do think that organizations, we generally should spend more time talking about it. And even though at the village we do have some significant conversations about it, it's probably not enough 
um, and not deep enough into the organization. I was very lucky. I, I came to the museum after an extensive search process and I was completely unlicensed to drive the bus. I had never run a museum before. Uh, we have a restaurant division, a hotel division. I had never been in that business. Uh, my academic background was economics. My initial professional experience was in banking. And then I left banking to work in urban education and wound up starting a public charter school in Providence, uh, which I was leading when the village, uh, the search consultant came calling. And what I'll say about that process, Anita, which I thought was really great, uh, is that it was extraordinarily thorough. And the village at that time uh, was facing, as you know, some pretty significant challenges. Um, there had been massive layoffs, um, huge annual deficits. Uh, business elements had been shut down, attendance was at an all-time low. So the museum was in trouble and the next president, that was probably the most risky decision that the board was going to make, right? And the person who came. And the person who came. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but the process I thought was just amazing. I mean, the board uh, was transparent about all of the issues. Uh, they spent time with me in Providence, uh, in my then organization, spent the day. Uh, talking with people who reported into me, uh, getting a feel for what my leadership style was like, uh, confirming some of the things that I talked about. Um, so I thought that they did a great job and they took a risk, right? That it was someone who had no curatorial background um, coming into the museum at that time. I just want to pause because um, one of the things that you just said was the amount of time the board put in to the search. Um, we spend a lot of time, as you know, visiting with organizations and occasionally, or more frequently than I'd like to think, I'll ask the board about succession planning. And um, I get the impression that, well, when it happens, then we'll just hire somebody new, as if it's something that can turn around on a dime. To do it well, it does take time. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time and, and the right kind of time. So one of the exercises that the board asked me to do near the end of the process, when there were just two of us left in the game. And, and how long was the process? Oh my goodness, it started beginning of October and it ended January 31st. Mm -hmm. So it was a good four month process and, and, and busy. It wasn't like there were long gaps of time. But the final exercise uh, was to write a 100 day plan, how I would spend the first three months on the job. And when I talk to trustees who were involved in the process now, they say that was the, it was very clear at the end when we looked at the two plans, um, who was the person that, that, that we wanted. And so I would urge all organizations that are looking at bringing in you know, a new CEO to ask for that. Because it really gives you a window, right, into how someone's going to be thinking about their first 90 days and what their priorities will be and how they'll approach that. Um, so at the village, uh, we think a lot about succession planning. Um, not that I have any intention of going anywhere, but the reality is that things can change and the organization has to be ready for that. So one of the first things that I did was to make sure that anyone who reported to me understood the financials of the village. I was shocked actually when I got there that members of the management team, the senior management team, had never seen the internal financial statements for the museum. They knew what their own departmental budgets were, uh, but they didn't see how those budgets fit into the bigger picture of the village. Um, and because we were gonna be faced with making some pretty significant decisions, right, 
based on finances, I felt the management team really had to have an understanding of that. And in fact, we started a practice of putting the monthly financial statements up for the entire staff. So all 200 employees can sit in a staff meeting and they'll literally walk through the financials so that they see what's happening to revenue, what's happening with expenses, where are there variances that are expected, where are there surprises. So I think it's, it's given people more confidence in some of the decisions we've made because they understand the financial rationale. But as I'll say to the people who report to me, you can't run the museum if you don't have an understanding for how to read a balance sheet uh, or how to project cash flow. Um, so that, I think, has been an important step. So you're sort of uh, probably saying building a bench may or may not be the right word, but you are building a capacity within the organization so that you know, I hate to use the hit by a bus example, but that should a sudden calamity occur. Absolutely. And we do that not just with the financials, but any major initiative. So for instance, right now we are working on a public charter school application to open a charter school at the museum in 2017. Um, I have that experience, and so there's a myth, right, that, that, that without Jim there would be no charter school. So we've worked really hard to make sure that every member of the senior management team is playing a role, right, in helping to bring this school to life and that everyone understands how these things work, what the priorities are, um, how they're held accountable, uh, so that the institution really can sustain that if there is the, the, the bus that drives through. Um, Peter Pan bus probably, right? Um, <laughs> with a whole bunch of with visitors. With a whole bunch of visitors on it. Um, so we do that and then I think you know, every year when I do the evaluation, so I have two, there are two themes in my mind. Um, if, if you're on the senior management team of the village, my goal is to ready you to be a CEO somewhere, whether here at the museum or somewhere else. And so I've been very happy that um, some of my colleagues have been finalists uh, as they've looked to take on their own directorship. So you're giving a career path while you're at the same time building capacity. Absolutely. Because what's, what's better, right, than to send very talented leaders out to other organizations and better for them too, you know. Um, and then any, what we've tried to do at the village is to build a culture of succession planning. So, you know, an annual review will not happen at the museum with me without me asking you, okay, if you were to be gone tomorrow or if I were to pluck you and put you into another capacity, who on your team would replace you? So it's not just the CEO that no, you're thinking about. No, And in fact, we're trying really to weave it, Anita, all the way down, you know, and through, through the entire organization that everyone is thinking, you know, who's your successor if for some reason, you know, you're, not, you're no longer doing this job. And because some of the work at the museum is so unique, and particularly in the craft space, um, that becomes, that can be a scary conversation when people say, well, I don't know. You know, there's no one who can take over for me as well, the people lead do to like Smith. to feel indispensable. Yes, they do like <laughs> to feel indispensable. But, you know, and you can push people to really kind of, you know, force an answer. Um, but I think that, that it's, those conversations have resulted in a culture where people feel more comfortable, right, having those discussions and envisioning someone coming in and succeeding them. And what I've tried to do at the village to create leadership opportunities and moments where you know, people can develop their leadership skills is to recast positions. So I have colleagues on the senior management team who were doing one thing eight years ago. Five years ago, we're doing something completely different, and now we're doing a third completely different job, still on the senior management team, but not doing the same thing. And that's created 
openings for others, but it's also helped those colleagues, you know, broaden their skill set. Uh, I have a senior VP right now who's really the leader on the charter school project. And when she's done with this, I mean, she'll know how to open a public charter school in Massachusetts and can share that with others or possibly do that on her own if she wants to someday. So The epiphany I'm having right now as I listen to you talk about this is we generally think about succession planning as some like disaster preparedness sort of scenario where exactly. you're, you're having to refill the top guy because something else, something happened. They got another job or something happened. But what you're really doing is really um, building a stronger organization if nobody leaves at all. Correct. Correct. And that's really, you know, ultimately I would be thrilled to continue to work with all of the same people I'm working with now because they've been huge assets to the museum um, and they're just a great team. So you're right, it strengthens us. Um, it, it provides them with the skills and experiences that make them more marketable should they want to be a, a CEO if they can't be one at the village. Um, and it allows for, if something happens to me, um, internal capacity, right? Uh, to do that on a long-term or short-term interim basis. One of the other things um, that came up when I uh, was visiting and had a conversation with your board, uh, your board has a, some savvy business people on it, um, <laughs> and they were very, very cognizant of the cost of replacing a CEO. Mm -hmm. The cost time, we've talked a little bit, it could take four months, it could take six months or longer to find the right person. And there's also an expense, um, hiring a search firm, mm -hmm. um, maybe hiring an interim, mm -hmm. um, or paying somebody a, a bonus to serve in that capacity while you're looking for a CEO. And that's not something that is always accommodated in organizational budgets. Correct, especially if it's an unexpected transition, right? Um, so that's another reason why we spend a lot of time thinking through if there was a six-month gap so just two weeks ago at the senior management meeting, we're at the middle of our fiscal year. I listed on a piece of newsprint the eight things that we have to get done by January 31st to call the year a win. And then we went around the table and I said, okay, who owns, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, who's taking number one across the finish line? Who's taking number two? So now we have the list and the names of the people who own those goals so that if something happens, the organization knows that in six months these things will get done because these people own them. Yeah. Leadership transition is strategic, mm -hmm. should be part of a strategic planning, thoughtful process, um, and it's not just about um, the end of a person's tenure, it's about sustaining a strong organization. Correct. Even if that organization moves in a different direction under new leadership. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big believer in very good beginnings and very good endings. And so the board and I have agreed that if, if it is possible to do this, that we would give each other a year's notice um, before any transition. Uh, so my current contract ends sometime in 2017, so we'll start having conversations now about um, an extension to that, uh, if that's something they want. Uh, my sense is it is, but we'll, we'll see. Um, so that we're trying to make sure that when there is a transition, whenever possible, everybody comes out the other side, you know, feeling better, right, about the experience together. Jim Donahue, President and CEO of Old Sturbridge Village, another of our creative minds out loud. Thank you, Anita. Thank you for having me today.
To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.